If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Jennifer McQueen. The summer of 2023 is unofficially over as kids head back to class. But is it? I say we enjoy the holidays until there's a chill in the air. Here, Scott Thompson. Who is producing these things for him? Phil Spector? It's like the wall of sound there. I don't know what. Come on out. Come on to the shower. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. It is back to school and a new curriculum. The kids are actually being taught to write now. <laughs> Seriously. I don't like, you know, my kids were like, uh, they're 21 and 16 now and like, uh, they weren't taught how to write. They stopped. I think they got it, the lesson in grade three or four or whatever, and then it stopped. They didn't do it anymore. My kid goes to sign for his, uh, driver's license the other day. It's like, really? You look like you're, you want a crayon for this? But seriously, for years they have, we don't need cursive because we live in a, a computer world. How stupid is that? You got a passport? You got a signature? Can you express yourself if your phone goes dead? Oh man, a little common sense would be good, but, um, yeah, that's what we're working on. Uh, what else we got? Oh, the big uh, green belt thing. Holy smokes, over the weekend, the cabinet minister resigns, the housing minister. And, of course, he should because until he does, uh, there's, there's no talk about housing. There's just, oh, look what he did. Look what he did. Look what he did. And now the whole dang thing is going to be reviewed, which I think is absolutely a stellar idea. And this should have really been done right at the beginning because there's people out there that honestly think if they slap uh, if they slap Doug Ford around enough that the, the green belt will go away and it will never be talked about again, which is the biggest pile of BS you're ever going to imagine. Because if you think the green belt's an issue now, you wait 5, 10, 15, 20 years, the time that they haven't built houses in the past, the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, this is going to be an issue. And the one great thing that it does uh, do, meaning the Greenbelt debate, and it's going on forever, kids, so settle in, get your popcorn. It's going to be going on for decades, decades they're going to be talking about the Greenbelt. Uh, but what it has done is it's drawn, to, it's drawn to attention the 20 to 40 years worth of land, alternative land, that we don't have to go into the Greenbelt for. And, of course, asking the bigger question, why the hell haven't you built on that then? And again, it's because the same people on the left, the environmentalists, they don't want urban sprawl. They don't want to build on the green belt. They don't want to build on the urban boundary. They don't want to build by the uh, white belt. They don't want to build anything. And now we are where we are. And so I'm very happy that the uh, that finally uh, cooler heads. And that's what you got. You know, at least when this government, when they when the crap hits the fan, they at least correct themselves. And this is just becoming way bigger a distraction. The green belt. Uh, investigations are becoming a bigger uh, distraction than building homes. And again, when you listen to those on the left uh, uh, that that are saying the green belt, green belt, green belt, they're not saying anything about housing. Where's the housing? Where is the housing you were supposed to build on that 20 to 40 years of land? Where is it? And I mean, you know, whether you, you, whether you solve the green belt debate today, tomorrow, whenever, that ain't going to build any more homes. 
Like you, you, you've got to admit that you haven't built homes and move on. Here's what the uh, premier had to say about the shuffling of the cabinet. You remove one guy, then everybody else has to. It's like musical chairs, really. Listen. Yesterday, I announced changes to our cabinet. This team, these ministers, they're the right team who will never stop working to build Ontario. They're the right team to get it done. I want to congratulate ministers taking on new portfolios and welcome members of caucus who are new to the cabinet table. As Minister of Long-Term Care, Minister Klandra has been hard at work for residents and their families. Under his leadership, shovels are in the ground to build new long-term care homes across Ontario. All right, he's talking about Minister Calandra, who is the new housing minister. Tom, let's skip right to the Q&A. I want to hear, uh, this is the Prime Minister responding about how they have to uh, re-examine this Greenbelt system and how it all works. We're going to review the whole system, including the 14 properties. We're going to review all the properties. We're going to, we acknowledge the process wasn't up to snuff by, by any means. We're going to make sure that all properties are reviewed. All 7,800 is mandated in legislation that we should review them. We're going to review them. We're going to make sure they stand with their merit. And that's what we're going to look at. This is what should have been done right at the very beginning. Should have been done 10, 20 years ago, to be honest. Uh, it's about correcting the process and winning back trust, says the Premier. We're going to work with our government officials. We've already admitted numerous times, and I've said it today, I'll say it again, the process. Uh, I wasn't happy with the process. We're correcting the process and the 14 recommendations. So let me tell you about trust and why the people... Can, can trust this government. Results speak for themselves. Folks, when we took office back in 2018, I always give an analogy, we inherited a bankrupt company. Our track record speaks for itself. That's the reason the people of Ontario can trust our government. Uh, and how we're going to need a pandemic-type approach or a war effort to get this job done with the housing crisis. I'm going to come out. I never hide from the media. I don't run away for weeks and avoid the media. I'm out here addressing the media's questions, tough, tough questions, but I'm always going to be transparent with the, the people. Same as when we were going through the pandemic. Uh, we made it through the pandemic. It wasn't me that was doing it. It was Team Ontario. We need that a pandemic approach when it comes to building homes. There you have it. The Premier earlier today uh, talking about uh, the changes in the cabinet and the shuffle in the cabinet, which happens, uh, obviously, because the Minister of Housing has been changed. Uh, Calandra now is uh, uh, the Minister of Housing, so the rippling effect is felt. And then announcing that they're going to do a complete review of the whole Greenbelt situation. And this is supposed to be done every decade or so. You know, a lot of people just think you put the fence up around the Greenbelt and that's it. We don't discuss it again. And I'm telling you, those people are incredibly misguided. Because if you think there's an issue now, you wait 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. This is going to be a massive, massive issue. So it's great to see that finally we're going to look at this with big boy, big girl pants on and, 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 and really understand what we have here as opposed to just, this is the way it is. and da, 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 da. You can't do that when you're in a housing crisis. And this has helped do it. Very sad news over the weekend to hear the passing of Jimmy Buffett. And whether you remember the song Margaritaville or not, it certainly launched him 
on a path where uh, his his the relationship with him and his fans, the parrot heads and 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 the lingo and everything, the cult following, it, it was it just incredible to watch. And many are sad today as a result of this. Uh, Alan Cross is with us, host of the ongoing history of new music, and with us now. Alan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, so far I'm better than Jimmy. Yes. Yeah, so uh, talk about the relationship he had with his audience. I mean, it's one thing to be a successful musician, but this guy had a cult-like following, parrot heads, fin up, all of that stuff. Yeah. I mean, we have the Deadheads with the Grateful Dead, and then a close second, we would have the Parrot Heads. Uh, Deadheads have been around for a lot longer, but uh, the Parrot Heads were every bit as uh, devoted to, to Jimmy and that lifestyle, that sort of sailor, beach bum, margarita drinking, easy going, kind of chillaxing thing that, uh, you know, spawned an empire. I mean, when, when Jimmy Buffett died, he was worth at least a billion dollars because he was so much more than a songwriter. He was an entrepreneur that got involved in everything from retirement communities to restaurant franchises to um, cruises and a ton of other things. He he. It's amazing how and you said the lifestyle, because, you know, you know, there's one thing about uh, a, a person who has a very, very successful single. And in, in anybody who knows anything about his catalog, it, it's much more than just Margaritaville. That's for sure. But he really did sell the lifestyle, didn't he? Yeah. We, you know, for example, we go with the retirement community that he had in Florida. I mean, this was not a small investment. Um but it was a manifestation of everything that he espoused, which was, like I say, this easygoing Caribbean Key West, Florida type of lifestyle. And people bought into it um, in, in, a, in a very big way. Uh, so if you talk about people super serving their fans, I mean, it's really hard mm. to, to find an, an artist that did this much to, you know, I, I don't want to call it brand building because that sounds a bit crass. It, it, it wasn't. It was, it, it was, you know, entrepreneurship with a certain type of lifestyle and fan and consumer in mind that uh, he did very, very, very well. I, I mean, can you think of another artist that took care of their uh, fan base all the way through yeah. retirement? You know, to a point where you know they were able to buy a place to live in, in Margaritaville. It's really quite interesting. You know, the more people, you know, people who know about you know Cheeseburger in Paradise and um, and and Margaritaville and all these these other songs that he had, Son of a Son of a Sailor, and so on, they start reading into what Jimmy Buffett was all about. You're a non-parrothead, and you think, oh, this guy had a couple of hit singles back in the 70s and 80s. Well, well, no, it was much more than that. I, hmm. I know a couple of people self-described parrot heads and they're every bit as devoted to the cause whatever that may be as as any other as as a swifty as a bayhive as a um like i said as a deadhead it's amazing to watch on social media people offering you know if, if you know somebody who's a parrot head people are offering them condolences it's it's amazing how this has spread uh, the news of his passing has spread yeah, it, it, it was a very large family that will continue beyond his death. Um, and, you know, it became a community. You would go from show to show. You would meet the same people that you yeah. saw, uh, you know, every time he came to town or, or, or whatever. My favorite stat, too, is is 
uh, how deeply these people were involved in, in Jimmy Buffett shows. He was perhaps the only artist ever that was able to negotiate uh, a, a, a cut of ticket sales that equaled 105% of gross. And that, that's a, like, how do you get 105% of ticket sales? Well, um, Parrot Heads drank so much that he was able to negotiate a cut of liquor sales, which would work out to 105% of ticket sales. So, wow. Uh, so, uh, what do we know of his passing? Uh, apparently, a rare form of skin cancer. Yeah, he had something called uh, Mickel cell myeloma, um, uh, you know, melanoma. Thank you. Melanoma, um, yeah. Yeah, he, uh, it was, it was a, it's a rare type of skin cancer. Only about 3,000 people are diagnosed with it every year. What happens is it, it's uh, regular skin cancer or more run-of-the-mill skin cancer that gets down to the, uh, uh, the very base of the skin. And from there, it can metastasize throughout the rest of the body. So uh, probably sun-induced, that's the guess. Mm. Uh, but then when it got down to the lowest levels of the skin, it was free to travel throughout the body. And again, very, very rare. It does not happen all that often. And he'd been sick for a little while um, and had canceled some shows earlier in the year. But obviously it it uh, got much worse, metastasized everywhere. And on Saturday he died. Very sad. Uh, what happens now? What happens to Parrot Heads? What happens, you know, I mean, he's, he's a one-man show? No, I mean, it's, it's a big corporation. So he's got people that overlook the retirement village. He's got people that overlook the record sales. He's got people that overlook uh, the the, uh, um, the chain of restaurants. The restaurants, 20, yeah. I think there's 23 of them. So these are, you know, he would have been uh, like a titular head. At, you know, 76 years old, he probably had some hands-on aspect. He was probably the major uh, shareholder. I don't think it was a public company, but uh, he, he would he would be the guy where the buck stops. But uh, there would have he would have had an opportunity to put a succession plan in place, uh, knowing that he was not well. Uh, and you don't get to be that big of a you know worth a billion dollars without being a smart businessman. So he would have made sure that uh, the corporation that he begat lives on. Alan Cross with his host of the ongoing history of new music over the weekend, the passing of Jimmy Buffett, a rare form of skin cancer. Alan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You're welcome. We certainly know. I mean, all you have to do is drive around, and there's help wanted signs everywhere. Everybody's looking for help. And obviously, uh, you know, even in, with the financial difficulties that we're experiencing and affordability issues and such, uh, the employment rate, the unemployment rate is incredibly historically low. Uh, and Canada is experiencing a shortage of, uh, of a lot of occupations, industries, including a pilot shortage. There's growing fears that uh, there is a pilot shortage and that a number of Canadian pilots are seeking to fly in the United States. Uh, and that number is going up over the last year or so, according to previously unreported U.S. government data. To talk more about all of this, Keith Mackey is with us, Mackey International, and here now. Keith, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, Scott, and I hope you are also. So, Keith, is this the big issue? Uh, is it often that we see pilots going from one country to a, another? Um, how is that an issue? Does it happen a lot? Well, in recent years, it's becoming more frequent. 
because there is a pilot shortage. What we've done in the States is a number of years ago, we upped the mandatory retirement age from 60 to 65. And now we're discussing uh, changing it to 67. That would allow even more experienced pilots to stay on the job. But in the meanwhile, uh, we have another issue here, and that's our our pilots are required to have 1,500 hours before they can fly for an airline. So if you take a pilot from another country who can acquire this experience on his own aircraft that don't have that requirement, he's very uh, likely a good candidate for a U.S. airline. And uh, traditionally, perhaps we pay a little bit more, but worldwide, there are many countries that really don't get a pilot cadre out of their military and have to hire foreign pilots completely. Some of them are even taking students out of schools that look like they'd be good airline pilot candidates and training them from zero experience to Mm. their rating so that they can fly the airplane, albeit as an inexperienced co-pilot initially. And it'll be a long time before these people are able to transition, as we say, to the left seat and become the pilot in command. So there's always a uh, large void for qualified people to fill these seats. Uh, 1,500 hours, you said, before you can get on with a larger airline. We've talked about this before, Keith, that how do you come up with 1,500 hours? Because that's expensive unless, I don't know, you're, you're working for much smaller organizations, flying cargo, this, that, and the other, maybe out of the north. Well, as usual, you broke the code. That's exactly how it works. The uh, companies, uh, the smaller companies particularly, uh, that have less lucrative routes will hire pilots with less than 1,500 hours because they're not required for their operation to have that experience and pay them less. And the minute that pilot's logbook changes from 1499 to 1500, you know where he goes and he's looking for a job and generally won't have any trouble finding one. Uh, you, you mentioned military before. How much uh, is that a, a, a route, uh, a pathway to getting your pilot's, li- uh, pilot's license? Is that uh, a big of an option as it once was? Well, uh, the short answer is no. There's not that many pilots coming out of the military. We don't really have that many pilots anymore. It isn't like uh, during the Vietnam era when we had all sorts of people that were uh, being discharged from the military with flying experience. So that just isn't happening. And some pilots are hired from the military, as you might expect, but it isn't a large source. Most of them are coming from from other uh, sources. Is it, so it's expensive to learn to fly. I mean, you know, you start with a single prop. By the time you get to a jet, that's a huge investment. Well, just getting your basic ratings, uh, a pilot to apply for a uh, even a smaller company would need a commercial pilot certificate and an instrument rating. And generally to uh, acquire any additional experience, he'd have to work as a flight instructor. So he'd need instructor ratings. And this is all very expensive. I mean, you can uh, easily spend well over $100,000 just accumulating the experience to get an entry-level job. Uh, so obviously, Canada being a smaller country, the airlines being smaller, they're, uh, they're the perfect candidates for you know plucking pilots out that, uh, as soon as they get their hours? Well, apparently, there's also a pay differential between what the Canadian mm-hmm. carriers are paying 
and what U.S. carriers are paying. And a lot of pilots are concerned about the high cost of living in Canada in a densely populated area. Mm. It's rather expensive. And uh, of course, this comes out of the back pocket when you're not making a whole lot of money. So that's certainly a factor as well. Uh, Air Canada heading into contract negotiations at the end of September. How much does this have to play into all of this? Well, when contracts are due, it's always significant. It's always a balancing act. I mean, we're concerned about passenger fares. We need to keep flying affordable so that uh, we have our customer base intact. And we want to pay our pilots more, but somewhere the difference has to meet. You you can't keep raising pilot salaries and keeping a uh, cost of flying low. So it's a balancing act for the airlines. And it is a very significant factor in the way things are going to go forward during the uh, Air Canada negotiations at the end of the month. Obviously, Keith, every situation is different, airline, country, what have you. But if you are pursuing this route, if you're one day, I want to be a pilot on a commercial jetliner, what is the starting pay for that? What does a pilot make? Well, the pilots that are building their hours to get to that 1,500-hour mark are generally, <clears throat> excuse me, quite underpaid. Mm-hmm. Once they're on with the, uh, uh, the fill-in the feeder uh, airlines that don't yeah. require the 1,500 hours, they're paid a fairly minimal salary until they get to that magic mark. And the airline knows at that point they're going to lose them anyway to the higher paying commercials. The commercial airlines pay rate is based on union wages, whereas the uh, the charter operators and that don't have union contracts and they can pay whatever they want, provided it's enough to attract the people they need. And you know, Scott, it isn't just pilots, it's uh, mechanics also. Mm. And uh, sometimes with some of this equipment, particularly the older equipment, parts are becoming scarce. So it's a really balancing act uh, all the way around to keep the uh, the airplanes flying and the flight attendants as well. There's frequently flight attendant shortages and uh, air traffic controller shortages. So it's really an industry issue. We're going to have a, a difficult time in the next few years keeping our industry staff properly. That was my next question, Keith. What is this like for the future? Pilots retiring? Are there enough coming up? Well, the short answer, again, is no, there's probably not. There's probably some opportunity there for people who would have the basic skill set to be able to do this, would have the uh, the desire to have that type of uh, lifestyle. It's not the same as uh, working in an office, that's for sure. So not- uh, it takes a certain type of person to want to do it and a certain skill set to make it work. Keith Mackey with us, Mackey International, Canada experiencing a pilot shortage, some taking off to the United States. Keith, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. You too. According to Naomi Buck, cell phones have taken over our classrooms. I think, I think that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good observation. It's been a disaster. Writing in the Globe and Mail, she argues, uh, since we now know the effect screens have had on our kids, we need a, a new approach to the whole situation. You know, I, I'm not of the generation. I'm a 60-year-old guy, but I, I really do not understand why this is uh, such a problem. Um, because as I've found out in disciplining teenagers, there is no other great tool other than the cell phone. 
Uh, is that the problem, son? Give me the phone. Okay, that's it. Give me the phone. Give me the phone. No, no, don't know. It's like taking their heart. I think cell phones are the best disciplinary tool there's ever been. Uh, so, and, and you can't take it off them? Oh, no, watch me. What do you, what do you mean you can't? Are you the parent? Uh, so, uh, where is this discussion now? Let's bring in Naomi Buck, independent journalist, columnist, and uh, the column is in the Globe and Mail right now, and it's entitled Hold the Phone, and Naomi is with us now. Naomi, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, thanks. Do you do you ever get feedback from people saying, oh, this is impossible, Naomi, the, the, the toothpaste is out of the tube, the genie's out of the bottle, all this stuff. You can't turn, you can't turn this around now. Um, yeah, I think that feeling is out there, but I also think it's not true. I think it can be turned around, and it has been turned around in some schools and in some jurisdictions, um, and I think it's it's really just laziness. It's capitulation if we say we can't do anything about it. So, we created so, a problem, we have to solve it. So, uh, well put. We created a problem, we have to solve it. What do you do? How do you bring in guidelines now? So I, th- I think the guidelines, there can be very little ambiguity. I mean, Ontario has what it calls a cell phone ban, and, and anyone who's been inside an Ontario school recently knows that it, it's not worth the paper it's printed on. So I think the rule should be um, if kids bring phones to school, which I think most kids will persist in doing, then those schools, those phones are uh, not within their reach for the duration of the school day from the beginning to the end. And at the end of the school day or when they leave the school, they can take their phone with them. This sounds like complete common sense, Naomi. Why is this Mm -hmm. so difficult? Why is this so difficult? Well, I think... um, It's hard. It's a hard change. I mean, I make it sound easy. It's not going to be easy to do. We've got, I don't know what percentage of kids who are, you know, literally addicted to their phones, who who can't easily live without their phones at this point. So, uh, you know, that has to be addressed. That's a very real and serious problem. Then you've got a whole culture of education that is completely latched on to technology without thinking too much about it. Uh, so you've got a, a schooling system that is very much built around technologies, and phones are one of those. So that has to be rethought. And I think the um, the level of uh, involvement, I, I think that the authority structures in schools have to be reinforced so that uh, principals that are, are in a position to establish and enforce rules uh, without being penalized by, uh, you know, outraged parents uh, or disciplined by their managers. Um, I I think there's been an inversion in power relations such that parents and certain parents have an outsized influence on the way things happen at schools, and that is really to the detriment of most students and most teachers. It really seems quite simple, though. Kids come in the classroom, the phone goes there. And if we mm-hmm. need the phone, if we need the phone uh, for part of a lesson, then here mm-hmm. it is. We use it for this amount of time, and then it goes back. Like it, it really seems like the, I, I really don't understand what the problem is. And, and when this happens, do kids go through a, a process or, or through anxiety? Is it the mm-hmm. parent? Is it the parents that's saying, "No, my kid has to have the phone"? I mean, it's very, very mm-hmm. simple. You follow the rules, or you mm-hmm. don't get to go to class. Well, it should be, but it's not because look at how things are playing out. So, yes, kids do have a problem relinquishing their phones. 
And teachers have a problem enforcing that because they are not fully supported by their superiors who are not fully supported by their superiors. So there's a real reluctance, as I mentioned in the article, and as any uh, educator will, who's being honest with you will, will, will share, it, it is considered quite risky to remove a phone from a student, to physically mm. remove it. And yeah. that gets into this inversion in power relations where kids have final say. And that's not good for kids. That's not good for anyone. They um, have the final say, Naomi, until, oh, maybe they have a job and the boss says, put the phone down or you're fired. Right, right. So really? That, that I mean, day, that day may come, but it's not coming in schools, at least not in the majority of schools. And, uh, you know, the exception it's kind of becomes the rule. So once there's a culture of resistance like that, once one student sees that other students are able to get away with that, that sends a pretty powerful message as to who's in charge. And I, I really think that has to be changed. Uh, and that goes beyond phones. That's, that's an authority yeah, issue yeah. more generally. That's a, that's a cultural shift. Um, the reasons for which I'm sure are quite complex, but uh, the pandemic didn't help. And I think mm. we've reached a point now where something really has to change, not on paper, not in principle, but in practice. Is this resonating? Or are we finally, is the pendulum swinging back here? I would hope so. I mean, there are some schools that are just just trying it out. You know, they're just sort of going rogue and they're instituting their own policies. Um, and I think those examples, because those are very positive examples, I haven't yet read of a cell phone, you know, an effective cell phone ban that the school regretted. Uh, I think those examples have to be really broadcast and talked about um, because they they offer inspiration for what is possible. Hold the phone. Cell phones have taken over our classrooms and it's been a disaster. Now that we know the effect screens have on our children, we need a new approach. Naomi Buck, that's a special to the Globe and Mail. Naomi, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome. You too. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. I'm sure you heard over the course of the weekend, uh, sad news that uh, Jimmy Buffett had passed away. And uh, if you are a fan of Jimmy Buffett's and and you follow uh, the way his audience does, you are a parrot head. And they literally go from place to place. And uh, it's it, just like deadheads. They follow Jimmy Buffett. It's more than just the music. And it was interesting over the course of the weekend when this news broke uh, because everybody thought thinks about the parrot heads that they may know and and offer their condolence to them as many did for ken mann which is the resident parrot head at 900 chml he's been a fan for years and he's with us now ken thanks for the time i hope you're doing well i mean sad news for you today uh, this weekend yeah yeah it was and it continues to be but you know it's it's also a time to you know remember all the great times that i've had as as being a fan and uh and some of the special events that I've been able to take part in over the years. And it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of emotions, really. So tell us, how many times have you seen the, this man? How many uh, events, per se, have you been to? Um, I'm not sure in terms, in terms of concerts, maybe 10 to 12 over the years, most mm -hmm. of them in Toronto. But I've seen him a few other places as well, which has been pretty cool. And uh, some other events, too. One of one of my personal highlights is I was down in Key West at one point and I took Jimmy Buffett's mm. tour of Key West. And, uh, 
you know, he's, he's got a recording studio down there and toured around, saw all the places that he started out at and some other places in town. And that, that was a pretty cool experience as well. So there've been a lot of, a lot of highlights in my life related to uh, being a parrothead. How did you become a fan? When did you become a parrothead? You know, I was back in probably my late teens, early 20s. So, you know, three, four decades ago. And I have a lot of American relatives and I have a cousin down mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania who was a fan and he introduced me to his music. And uh, yeah, it started from there and I started to buy more and more of his CDs and listen to more of his songs and and pick up the attitude and the lifestyle that, that goes with it all. And that's how it started. What was it like? I've never seen him live. What was it like to see him at a show uh, and be with all of these people? You know, it's, it's, you know, it's recapturing a piece of your childhood, I suppose, in a way. Um, I've been asked this question a lot before, and it's hard to kind of explain what it's like to be at at a Jimmy Buffett concert. You kind of have to be there to experience it. And I'm sad that you didn't get that chance. That would have been amazing for you. But uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of grass skirts and uh, coconut bras and, uh, and uh, <laughs> obviously a lot of fun and, uh, and sun and music and, and great times with, with friends. I uh, got an interesting note from a fan. We were talking to Alan Cross earlier and, uh, and she wrote in and said a number of years ago, uh, she visited Margaritaville in Key West. Margaritaville was the uh, restaurant or, or um, right. a beach club sort of thing that he would have. I think he's got one in, in the grill and wherever. They're all over the place. Anyway, she visited the one in Margarita, the Margaritaville in Key West. She said he was not there, but we heard a good story. Unannounced, he would just show up at any of his restaurants, give the staff the day off, and just put on an in, impromptu performance for everyone. Uh, and that resonated with her. So yeah, it, he was at the one in Niagara Falls at one point as well. He showed up around 2010 and did that. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to that one. I didn't hear about it in time. And that was uh, my biggest regret. It's a parrothead. So uh, what now? Like, will, will there be a parrothead memorial? You know, I was talking to Alan Cross. This guy was an incredible businessman. He was involved in everything and even um even uh, like retirement homes and stuff like that he was quite the businessman yeah absolutely and i think i've read that five or six thousand employees as part of that empire around north america and uh, it'll continue i mean there's he's got people running that for him he's got kids and yeah. uh, and the music isn't going anywhere it's still there we just don't yeah. get any more of it so actually yeah. that's probably not true either because he was close to releasing a new album and i'm sure that will come out this fall at some point too all right uh, ken man with us uh 900 chml resident parrot head and we're all mourning the loss of jimmy buffett over the course of the weekend ken give it a spin and i even had some of his beer this weekend what the heck uh uh, you know, this guy was involved in everything. So cheers to you. Good luck. Go home and listen tonight. Fins up forever. Uh, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, according to them, uh, those who believe Canada's official residents are crumbling due to lack of funding may have missed something. The numbers, the National Capital Commission spent $135 million renovating and maintaining the official residences from 2006 to 22, according to the Canadian Taxpayers Federation uh, analysts of report. To talk more about all of this, Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. And here now, Franco, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, Scott, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So first of all, tell everybody what the National Capital Commission is, because if you don't live in Ottawa, you might (laughs) not even know what this is about. It's like a government parks and recs board, but on steroids. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's the government really? agency that manages the properties, or I should say the mansions for politicians and bureaucrats, the dignitaries. Uh, we have six official residences in Ottawa, all paid for uh, by the taxpayer. You got the prime minister's residences. You got the governor general residences. You have a mansion for the leader of the opposition for some reason, a mansion for the speaker of the house, five bucks, if you can guess who that is. And then you also have a mansion set aside for uh, foreign dignitaries who end up traveling to Canada. Again, all paid for by the taxpayer and all overseen by this National Capital Commission or the NCC. Uh, you, you know, the the whole thing about 24 Sussex, I think that's been a, a joke for a while now that, that it's it's falling into disrepair or has fallen into disrepair or and, and such. Why are we just talking about now? Like, why is it now when we're all in the middle of the housing crisis that they're talking about doing this? Why didn't they talk about this eight years ago when times were good? Well, that's a great question. Um, now, one of the parts that I've been hearing in the media, one of these myths that I've been hearing in the media and parts of social media and also just in Ottawa, in and around town, is that the reason that we haven't heard this conversation is because of years of underfunding. And one of the reasons we hear about this is that the NCC claims this itself. So we said, okay, let's go through the NCC's books, the NCC's own reports, and we look back to 2006, and it turns out that there is no underfunding. There is a ton of spending. The NCC has spent $135 million, $135 million, on these properties, on these six official residences since 2006. Let me just put that into perspective. $135 million over that time period is about $8.5 million every single year the NCC has dropped into these mansions, which, by the way, is enough money to buy a brand new mansion in the Ottawa area every single year. So this isn't underfunding. This is incompetence and waste. So if there's this sort of funding going into the six official residents, uh, obviously one of them was 24 Sussex, how did it fall into such disrepair? Because of some of the things they're spending money on. Let me just give you two examples, just to kind of um, really show how ludicrous some of this is, okay? So at Harrington Lake, one of uh, the prime minister's official residents, one of the prime minister's mansions, it's the cottage, essentially, for the prime minister, the NCC spent $735,000 renovating the kitchen. $735,000 wow. renovating a kitchen. That's the cost of a home in Canada. Mm. Okay, I mean, I know the price of homes are going out of uh, spiraling, but that's neither here nor there. Now, the second thing that I wanted to bring to your attention, another great example of what's going on, the NCC spent $140,000 studying and designing a staircase at Rideau Hall that never got built. Do you get mm. that, folks? The NCC spent $140,000 on a stairway that they didn't build. You know what? Most Canadians spend $0 on stairways they don't build. So when we get back to 24 Sussex, should the NCC have enough of its own cash to do the renos itself? Well, I mean, you would think so after we just spent $135 million on these six properties. But get this, folks. Uh, apparently $135 million wasn't enough for this government agency. They're still crying uh, underfunding. They're still crying poor. The NCC wants another $40 million to fix up 24 Sussex, and it wants $175 million over 10 years to fix up all the properties. So we just gave them $135 million to spend on these six official residences for the prime minister, some other politicians, and some other bureaucrats. And now they say, well, give us another $175 million and it'll all be fixed. Well, I say, I don't think that passes the sniff test. 
You know, I'm not this <laughs> expert when it comes to uh, contracting, but the NCC reminds me of the contractor that your buddy warns you never to hire because all they do is show up and balloon the tabs. So what is the answer for 24 Sussex? How do we do this right? I mean, it's obvious that it, it, you know, it is in disrepair. It can't be used. Should we just move on to something different? Should we try to reno that? Well, that's a good question. And, and honestly, the people who need to figure this one out is both our politicians, whether that's an all-party committee, let's figure it out, or it's the NCC. I actually think step number one, step number one is the NCC has to come back and provide us a legitimate budget a legitimate plan for what they want to do that doesn't cost taxpayers an arm and a leg because right now they want another $40 million. They need to come back with a plan that's reasonable. And if they can't, someone needs to get fired. I mean that. Like either someone within the NCC, either some of their top bureaucrats within the NCC, or the NCC itself needs to get fired. And the government needs to start contracting this out to builders in the private sector. Because, you know, what's funny is that some uh, an advocacy group told the CBC last week um, they looked at this and they said the claims for the NCC, the cost at the NCC is out of touch with what industry st- standards should be. And, and for good reason, right? Because if you look at the $135 million spent over the last, what, decade and a half, that would have been enough money just to buy a brand new mansion every single year. So 15 brand new mansions. So we should all be scratching our head wondering why it is that the NCC is now looking for more money from us. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Federal Director, National Capital Commission, spending a lot to renovate uh, renovate, uh, official residences in Ottawa. And still we have 24 Sussex uh, in disrepair. Franco, as always, keep fighting the good fight. Thanks for the time. (laughs) Hey, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. 427 News on the way. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The Prime Minister, as we speak, is in Asia, and there is talk of an Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, He's looking for other trading partners other than all the eggs in the China basket, sort of speak, and and look to other options, and this is one of them. Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad, McDonald Laurier Institute, and is here now. Charles, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. It's good to hear from you. So trade talks uh, top this. uh, The prime minister's agenda is the headline that I'm reading on the news right now is this is all uh, happening as we speak. So what is the advantage? Why is the prime minister there? Well, um, he's really going to the G20 in India, you know, which is a very important international event of which there are a lot of issues because the Chinese and the Russians will both be sitting it out. But before he does that, he's gone to the ASEAN meeting, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, who have decided to agree to what's called a strategic partnership with Canada and to negotiate free trade with Canada. So, you know, as you said in your introduction, this really is about the desire of Canada and the Southeast Asian nations to diversify their trade ties so that they have some outs from over-reliance on China and try and prevent China from engaging in, you know, economic coercion to further their overall strategic agenda. Then he's going to Singapore for more trade talks. But then he's going to this meeting in India where, you know, there are a lot of significant issues coming up, uh, including the war in Ukraine, but also, you know, how you deal with international debt architecture, 
what about cryptocurrency? Can we come up with some means to to regulate that? And things like uh, food and energy security. So, you know, the G20 meeting is a very significant meeting. But the fact that, that China and Russia are not sending either of their leaders is a bit worrying that, you know, we could be seeing a world where the G20 is seen as a Western nation dominated institution and China and Russia would rather work with an expanded BRICS, um, you know, uh, another multinational institution involving more third world countries that aren't as friendly to democracy. So, you know, it's a complicated uh, trip he's going on. The problem is that, you know, Canada really doesn't have um, much in the game because we we're just so uh, behind in terms of our military capabilities that it's hard for nations of the world to take us as a serious player anymore. That was my next question, Charles. How are we viewed at these summits? Are we a player? Are we uh, are people interested or or, or people of uh, are people growing weary of the talk? Well, I think, you know, certainly in terms of India, India is not happy with Canada because of uh, what they see as Canadian support for a terrorist movement or seek independence called Khalistan, you know, that there are mm. significant elements uh, here in Canada who have been demonstrating in front of the Indian High Commission here in Ottawa and Indian consulates around demanding um, an independence Sikh state. And some of those people have been associated with terrorism. You remember the last time uh, Mr. Trudeau was in India, he made the mistake of um, being at a reception where where someone who was quite uh, mm. uh, suspicious in terms of connections to, to terrorism was invited, not to speak of his desire to go around with his family in Bollywood wedding uniforms in India, which I think yeah. the Indians found weird, to say the least. But, you know, it, it, we do have tensions there with India. But I think with the rest of the world, Canada is just doesn't have the weight that we think we should have in terms of these institutions, because, um, you know, we just don't have enough skin in the game. How does China feel about uh, this Indo-Pacific strategy or the fact that we're looking at other options? Oh, I mean, China opposes it very much so. And, you know, I watch the Chinese news and they they talk about, you know, developing hostile cliques that threaten China's legitimate rise and and trade, you know, not to speak that China's been doing the same thing bigger time, but you know, they don't approve of the of the Australia, UK, US alliance. They don't approve of the Quad alliance between India, Japan, uh, Australia, and the United States. And they, they're not happy about Canada's contribution to freedom of navigation exercises in the South China Sea that you know, we know our international waters, but which China is trying to claim for itself. So, you know, there are a lot of tensions there. The reason that the Chinese leader is not going is unclear. It could be due to instability inside China, due to failing economy and other policies on the part of Mr. Xi, where he just feels he can't leave the country. The reason that Mr. Putin won't be there is because he could be arrested um, and sent to the International Criminal Court for some of his uh, activities with regard to Ukraine. But, you know, the fact that these two important leaders aren't there to to be engaged with, you know, there won't be any meeting between Mr. Xi and uh, President Biden, for example, that we were hoping to see, uh, doesn't bode well for the G20 or indeed for, for the future of international relations going ahead. 
Is it, and maybe it's me, but isn't it odd that, you know, uh, obviously the prime minister is doing this, and of course he should be involved in this. It's good for the country. It's good for uh, an Indo-Pacific strategy. But it was just last week that the environment environment ministers in China giving them a lesson on climate change. It just, it seems very bizarre, Charles. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, what what's this all about? And, you know, where is Mr. Trudeau going with this kind of thing? Uh, is a is a big question, particularly when there's so many domestic issues that are really uh, much in play, including you know things like the public inquiry into Chinese interference in our election and setting up a foreign uh, influence transparency registry so that um, we can figure out who's maybe working for the Chinese government without uh, without telling us who they are, that kind of thing. You know, so it's it is it is um, regrettable. I think that we seem to be engaged heavily into this kind of international festival where Mr. Trudeau gets to associate with other world leaders, but uh, domestically, you know, there's just all sorts of stuff that's not being done, and and that includes like a terrific number of of uh, government uh, appointments that have not been made. It just seems that that our government just isn't on top of what they should be doing domestically. And I think Canadian people are starting to to feel a bit uh, fed up with it all. Uh, What would be accomplished by the environment minister going there, both for us or for them? I'm not understanding the objective here. I think it was a big mistake. I mean, he's gone and is the vice chairman of a Chinese um, NGO, ostensibly, dedicated to international environment concerns that the Canadian government uh, contributes money to, believe it or not, and which has an office in Winnipeg, um, you know, really we're just providing more cover for the Chinese to suggest that they have intention to get serious about climate change. But in fact, they're continuing to build coal-fired electrical plants every Mm. week in China. And any notion that you know that Mr. Guibault can convince them to change their their environmental policies is you know naive at best. And in addition to that, you know while he was in China, he did not raise any of these serious concerns over Uyghur <laughs> genocide or other Chinese malign activities internationally and domestically in Canada. Thinking perhaps that he thinks that if he you know is polite to them that that they will make concessions on climate. I think it was wrong, and I'm really puzzled as to why the Prime Minister's office would allow a minister of the Crown, you know, who follows direction from the Prime Minister, to go to China and be be so used as as an (laughs) instrument for Chinese government propaganda. It it just, you know, it's just, I just don't understand what's going on there, and I I really uh, wish he hadn't gone. It's very odd. Uh, Charles Burton with us, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, uh, the Prime Minister and his Indo-Pacific strategy, and eventually G20 meetings. Charles, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Take care. All right, it's been quite a weekend for the Premier. We remember when we left off on Friday, uh, many were wondering why uh, the Housing Minister hadn't stepped down, because this was... (laughs) Pretty obvious it's going to be an astra- uh, at least a distraction. And then, of course, by the end of the weekend, that's exactly what has happened. Uh, the housing minister did step down and then uh, a resulting cabinet shuffle is uh, with those plans. And 
And now uh, a reassessment of the Green Belt, a, 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 a review of the Green Belt. What does all of this mean? Colin DeMello with us, Global News, Queens Park Bureau Chief, and here now. Colin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. So are you surprised, Colin, that the minister stepped down? It, it kind of looked like this wasn't going to go anywhere and that this was just becoming a major distraction. Surprises? Well, surprised and unsurprised. Surprised because, you know, the minister had really dug in his heels apologizing, yep. but refusing to take kind of any action or any accountability for what was happening there and said he would, you know, stick around because he had the confidence of the premier. Um, it was also unsurprising because, you know, we all knew that the writing was on the wall. His position was untenable at best. And, and you know, the, the only thing to kind of fix the situation would have been some kind of a resignation. So um, I, I think everyone but Steve Clark had seen the writing on the wall and something hmm. over the weekend convinced him that, you know, he couldn't continue on. He couldn't carry on without being a continued distraction. What do we know about our new housing minister? So the new housing minister, Paul Calandra, is actually, you know, quite a loyal kind of soldier for Premier Doug Ford in the legislature. Paul Calandra has been a longtime MPP, a longtime um, MP as well. He used to be uh, in Stephen Harper's uh, government as well. But here at Queen's Park, Paul Calandra has kind of cultivated a reputation for being a really skilled speaker in the Ontario legislature, very quick-witted. Uh, you know, things fast in his feet. Um, but he's also seen as an attack dog for the Ford government, right? Like, you know, anytime there's a scandal that the government has to endure, the responsibility of responding to every question, whether it was COVID-19, long-term care, or even the Greenbelt scandal, always fell to Paul Calandra. And he seemed to relish in the fact that he could kind of take on the NDP and, uh, you know, accuse them of not being um, favorable for, for affordable housing. So, uh, you know, the strategy here is really not being spread around by the premier's office, but ultimately from the outside looking in, it looks like the government needed a, an effective communicator to kind of, you know, fight their way out of the scandal. So that's what they're signaling here. They're putting their dukes up, getting ready for a fight because they know it's coming and they're not backing down. Uh, so what's about the whole green belt review? Everything is going to be looked at now. What does this mean? Many say that this should have been done first. Yeah, I mean, this was an interesting strategy from the government. So basically what they're doing is they're going to uh, review these 15 pieces of land, whether or not they meet the criteria to be out of the green belt. But then they're also going to review all 2 million acres of the green belt from one end to the other end. Uh, the premier said that you know, they have something like 700 applications for removals, and they want to assess all of them based on their own merits. Now, a review like this of the Greenbelt is not abnormal. Uh, in fact, when the Greenbelt was first created in 2005, yeah. part of the stipulation was that it would be reviewed every 10 years. Yeah. There was one review done in 2015. Another review was scheduled to be done in 2025. It seems like they're just fast-tracking that process. Well, what they're going to say, what they're saying here is they'll take the recommendations from the Auditor General. They'll try to create a process using civil servants and political staff, and then they'll conduct that review. But the Premier was asked today, hey, so at the end of this review, could you remove additional lands from the Greenbelt? And the Premier said, yeah, we'll make that decision when we come to the end of the review. Um, so basically, the Premier is you know, doubling down on this policy uh, by saying they could remove additional lands from the Greenbelt. Although, given the scandal, you know, 
they might they might just backtrack and use this as, as cover, but we have to see where this goes. Uh, honestly, Colin, I think this debate is going to be had for the for the next couple of decades. I mean, I don't think this is going away with one government or the other. Are politicians realizing that that this is a crisis that you know uh, you're going to be debating the green belt for an awfully long time as we manage it into the next twenty years? Yeah, I, look, I mean, I don't think anyone from the federal government to the provincial government, municipal governments, nobody seems to be arguing about the problem that, you know, housing is unaffordable, there's not enough inventory, uh, yeah. and as a result, homes are just out of reach for far too many people. But I think there's a lot of disagreement on the solutions at hand, right? The NDP today, as an example, said the province needs to get back into the business of actually building homes themselves. Um, and, you know, the Ontario Liberals, some Ontario Liberal candidates have uh, suggested that they, if they got elected, would, would create a, you know, um, an agency that would build homes so that that way they could control what the prices of those homes would actually be. They could mandate affordable housing. I think that's the problem here, right? It's, it's the solution that seems to have gotten the problem, the, the government in trouble, rather than the problem. And, and the Premier trying to pursue uh, an answer to that problem, nobody's taking points away from him for that. Um, but ultimately, it's how they ended up with these greenbelt lands for supposed housing development is a big question. And the one thing the government has not answered is how much are these homes going to cost in the greenbelt? You know, 50,000 homes. I mean, you know, a lot of people have bought their houses for a million plus. They're not going to sell them for any less. The market isn't dropping anytime soon. The question is, if they build any type of home here, how much is that going to cost? And, and is it truly going to be within reach for a lot of struggling families? Not building just puts it farther out of reach, I'm guessing. Uh, Colin DeMello, Global News, Queen's Park Bureau Chief. Uh, make sure you're watching Global Tonight. Colin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, over the course of the weekend, we were talking about this on Friday, and, you know, it looks like the housing minister should resign. Uh, decided not. He thought he could ride it all out. Then over the course of the weekend, we hear that, in fact, the uh, housing minister, Steve Clark, has stepped down, the rippling effect causing a cabinet shuffle. That was announced, and now plans to review the whole Greenbelt process. Where do we go now? Let's bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, and is with us now. Duff, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I am. Thank you. Hope you are as well. Uh, so are you surprised that uh, the resignation of the housing minister, uh, obviously it looked like it had to go that way because that was, was sucking all the oxygen out of the room. Your thoughts on what has transpired and now a review? Yes, I'm not surprised that the minister resigned. Um, you know, again, just to highlight, though, both Ford and Steve Clark. Um, said they believed in the decisions that have been made, and it's only really political pressure. I'm sure they, the Conservatives are doing internal polling that's showing, showing that this uh, is having a really negative effect on their supporters. And so uh, Steve Clark was the one who fell on his sword because uh, Ford is not going to. The chief of staff's resignation of uh, Ryan Amato didn't work to cool things off. And uh, it doesn't change anything in terms of the need for a full inquiry and a full RCMP investigation, including examining all the communications on all devices by Ford, Minister Clark, Ryan Amato, and all the other ministerial staff and uh, cabinet ministers involved in this decision-making pr process. 
Uh, what are your thoughts about the review that now has been called? Well, I think it's just uh, Ford actually getting some good advice to make a general statement to say that he's open to changing uh, the decisions and that will, whether they're actually changed, you know, his initial statement was we're not changing any decision, again, defending the the uh, decisions, even though they were made through a essentially corrupt process, but now backing off and just making an open statement to say, you know, maybe some things will be changed depending on the review. And it's all aimed at just putting things off and see how the heat goes and whether the media keeps focused on this in the opposition parties, like in any scandal. And if the media and opposition parties turn their attention elsewhere, then so will the government. I think what's great about this stuff is that the the great thing about this debate over the green belt is that it is exposed that on both sides, that there's 20 to 40 years worth of land. And I've talked to many academics about this. There's 20 to 40 years of land, whether it's it's outside of green belts, uh, within urban boundaries, white belts, whatever you want to call it, that that land is available. So you don't need to necessarily go into the green belt. But it's sort of taken the green belt debate in order to to, to shed light on that, because now everybody's asking, well, if that's the case, why do we have a housing shortage? And, you know, why are we not building land on that land or on those alternate lands? Because it seems the same people that are protesting the Greenbelt don't want to build anywhere, including those other alternate lands, which is how we arrived at the shortage. Yeah, I don't know the entire history. I, I mean, it is clear, though, that uh, uh, over the past uh, 15, 20 years, the federal government, provincial governments, municipal councils have wasted a lot of time and not uh, kept up with immigration levels and needs in in terms of uh, a growing need for for housing. Um, And so, you know, that's a pox on all their houses uh, of all parties uh, and stripes uh, and, and where they lie in the political spectrum on municipal councils, because uh, and there's not enough affordable housing out there. That's clear. And uh, that's really the legacy of bad decision making and policy making over the past 20 years by politicians at every level of government. Uh, I don't know. I, I've gone, honestly, Duff, I find the word affordable just, you know, it, it look, something shiny. Um, supply and demand. If you don't build enough, um, they're all going to be unaffordable. Um, at the no, end of the true. day, but, we, we, but we seem was. to, we need to build more. And, and, and I guess the point that I'm making here is that, um, uh, with the whole debate about the green belt, this is now exposing all the other flaws, which has really created the shortage here. And that is the inability to get land built or how homes built on this alternative land. And now it's as if we're asking Ontarians, well, what's more important, having a home or the green belt? And honestly, Duff, I think it's the former. And I'm a supporter of the green belt. It's a great idea. But at the end of the day, whether it involves green belt or not, you got to build homes. And it seems that this debate between the left and the right right now, and let's be honest, the left doesn't build. The right will build on the on the pit of a head if they could. And, and, and really what's happened now is that it's become a debate over the green belt as opposed to why we don't have homes built in the first place. And, and to me, that's like this debate about the green belt and housing, that's going to go on for decades. It will, yes. Um, I'm not an expert in the 
housing field, uh, from what I've read from various experts commenting on uh, how to solve the problem. It seems like changes to uh, tax structures and overall planning decisions were just not made well. The federal government got out of funding affordable housing, and it is an important part of it. You do need, there are some people who need yep. mm-hmm. government supported housing built, and that they pulled out of it in 95 and downloaded it onto the provinces, who downloaded it onto the municipalities, who don't have ability to raise the tax income to subsidize it, and so mm-hmm. it hasn't been built. Just very short-sighted decision-making over the last 20, 25 years has led to this uh, crisis. Uh, and and so um, hopefully they'll focus now on, on solving it. Um, I am an expert in government ethics, and decisions on the green belt are indefensible. They smell really badly. Yeah. And a full RCMP investigation is needed, looking in to all the communications on all communication devices, including the premier's personal cell phone, when he's using it for government business, then the, that's a public record that has to be disclosed under open government law as to who he's calling and who called him and when and about what. And there's no reason uh, justifiable for him to be hiding that under our open, Ontario's open government law. And hopefully the RCMP will look at all of it. Duff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Duff, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. Take care. You know, I really think that this politically, it's put Ontarians into a situation where, well, what do you care about? You, you Don't you care about the trees? Don't you care about the green belt? Don't you care about the environment? Or do you just want a roof over your head? I think Ontarians would rather have a roof over their head. Honestly, I believe that. Not that they don't care about a green belt, but you got to live. Fascinating article in uh, the Toronto Star. Money laundering is a significant problem in Ontario real estate transactions. This BC company wants to change that. Some $30 billion in dirty money has been washed through Ontario real estate over the last decade. Illumini Intelligence says they have developed software to catch those criminals. To talk more about all of this, Friedrich Klaus is with us, co-founder, Illumini Intelligence, and here now. Friedrich, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you very much for having us. How big of a problem is this? I remember talking about it with uh, people out in British Columbia, but even they said way back when that this is moving right the way across the country. This is a national problem, and it's been a national problem for the better part of 20 years. Uh, In 2015, Transparency International flagged Canada as one of the worst districts or localities for money laundering because we have opaque companies and poor access to data. Uh, This is so big, but no one has any idea how big it is because we just we don't know what we don't know. Uh, Where is this coming from? Explain this. What is dirty money? How does it infiltrate the real estate uh, market? Well, there's all sorts of sources of dirty money. Dirty money is, you know, it can be a drug dealer who's looking to launder $5 bills and $20 bills that he collects in his uh, in his employ, or it could be uh, it could be an oligarch from Russia or um, a member of the Chinese Communist Party who is looking to uh, hide the money that they've embezzled or stolen. Uh, and the best place to put it is Canadian real estate. Um, no one knows who goes in. The checks are very limited into who is buying what and the sources of their income. And the Canadian banks don't really care who their customers are or where they get their money from. Uh, if Canada was, Canada is perfectly designed as a money laundering machine. 
what um, uh, what does this do to the real estate market in Canada? How does this affect? What are the rippling? What, what's the rippling effect? Well, you and I pay higher prices for our rent, our goods, uh, and certainly our homes. Um, money laundering is not a price-sensitive additional layer of demand for housing. So $30 billion of untaxed, unearned income uh, means that you are competing for your house or you know, you're bidding for a house against, in theory, someone who has no price sensitivity. So they are not they're not concerned about how much they pay, nor are they concerned if they lose 20% or 30% of their money in if they overpay and they can't resell it. They're looking to legitima- legitimize dirty money that they've got in the course of crime. And sometimes they're used to paying high taxes. So losing 20% in a, in a real estate transaction or making 20% uh, is just normal uh, the normal cost of doing business. As you said, uh, or as you alluded to, nothing new here, and it doesn't seem we're really um, uh, on this or, or care too much about it. How does this software that you've developed help? It helps in the fact that we are giving the people who are tasked with enforcing the laws in Canada with respect to money laundering tools. And those are realtors and managing brokers and mortgage brokers and um, really small businesses. And because of a lack of federal direction in anti-money laundering, a lack of federal funding for anti-money laundering, a lack of federal funding for um, federal enforcement, this has been pushed down onto small businesses. And it's a real shame. And regulations are very complex. And these people who are our customers don't really have the money to comply. So we give them the right tool to let them do their job. And at the same time, we collect lots of data and look for trends. Um, and unfortunately, no one is doing that federally, provincially, or locally. So we're really the first. Um, why would the realtor be involved? I mean, like if the banks don't care, why would the realtor care who's buying, who's selling the homes? Well, at the end of the day, there are 155,000 realtors, and there are going to be some bad apples, but there are also going to be some active participants. And as in any industry, there are going to be one or two people who are who look at being a realtor as being a a way to help facilitate crime, and that is just an unfortunate. You know, banks have that. Um, all sorts of all sorts of industries have it. It's just that there aren't that many barriers to entry to the real estate sector uh, from a money standpoint. No one's really looking. Everyone, to quote a, to to borrow a line from Sam Cooper, everyone is willfully blind. Hmm. Uh, and now, I'm not saying as a result of this, but certainly a contributing factor to it is a housing crisis. Uh, yep. Not enough new houses, too many people changing, uh, chasing not enough new houses, prices going up, as, as you alluded to. Um, why? It, it just seems it would make sense to keep an eye on this. Why are we turning a blind eye to it? There are lots of reasons. Um, most of those rest with the federal government. Uh, I think that the federal government for 20 years has has looked upon rising house prices as a good mask for poor Canadian productivity. And so money laundering hasn't necessarily been a bad thing because it's made lots of homeowners rich or wealthier uh, by the the cost of their house going up. Um, So it's, it's only a problem now that we have a generational housing crisis. And now I don't think anyone really wants to look under the hood of the Canadian housing market to understand exactly where all these additional layers of demand come from. 
Is this something you think, Friedrich, we can change? I mean, this sounds like turning the Titanic here. We can change it overnight. It just requires the federal government to fulfill their promises of a federal agent's registry uh, and for the federal government to mandate that the realtors' bodies share the transactional MLS data that they have. This is a problem that's easily won or easily solved with access to data. And Transparency International has been saying that for the better part of a generation, and they're absolutely right. This can be solved. The federal government just needs to do something. Uh, you know, I, I wish I had a, a loony or a toonie for everyone who has said that, uh, Friedrich, because it just, it just, just, this just keeps going around in circles and it just doesn't seem to resonate with government. I, I couldn't agree more. So, uh, what makes you think we will now pay attention? Do you think the housing crisis is going to make us examine these sorts of things a little bit more closely? Yeah, I think I think if there's a recession in Canada and if housing goes down and at the same time that interest rates are going up, I think there's going to be hell to pay in the housing market and the banks are going to suddenly have to look look at themselves and see how we got here. And eventually, I think the federal government will have to take note and say that, hands up, they were responsible for at least a portion of this unwarranted demand. Uh, government interested in the technology you're discovering here that you're using and passing on to those in the real estate world? We've received some really good contacts with the federal and the provincial governments, but they are they're unfortunately beholden by the their the provincial acts and the federal acts. Um, Canada's legis- patchwork of legislative authorities is um, is a real challenge to anyone acting. So it requires a a real new look at our regulatory oversight and getting the government to cooperate and speak to each other. You know, we have the federal government didn't really participate with the Cullen Inquiry um, and the Cullen Inquiry was driven by the the BC provincial government here. Um, It just it needs to be a national topic to force our leadership to speak to each other and get the various levels of government and the industry industry bodies speaking, um, but we hope that we can provide a uh, a small bit of the unification of data so that we can at least start having a national conversation. Friedrich Klaus with us, co-founder of Illumini Intelligence, money laundering, a significant problem in Ontario real estate transactions and it directly, indirectly affects what we all pay. Friedrich, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you. Scott Radley, host of The Scott Radley Show, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. I'm just trying to figure out how to do this show again. It's been so long. <laughs> exactly. It's been all yeah. over the place. I, I've, it's been a while since we've chatted. Yeah, well, it was your show covering, and then it was Rick's show, and vacation, and yeah, I, I had to remember where the buttons were in here, but I think we figured it out. All right. So, um, you know, I'm listening to uh, everything that's transpired over the course of the weekend with the resignation of the housing minister, then the cabinet shuffle that ensued, and now the uh, review around the green belt, uh, which, you know, I think is a great idea because this problem is not going away and we'll be debating it no matter uh, who the premier is. Uh, for years and years and years to come. What I find fascinating with all of this discussion is it seems more about pinning the premier. And, you know, I get this, the opposition, that's their job. It seems more about pinning 
the premier with his pants down than it is about solving the problem of houses. And I'm not sure politicians, including Councillor McMeekin, who was once uh, the housing minister for the Kathleen Wynne government, for goodness sakes, you know, I, I honestly think a lot of politicians honestly believe that although can, uh, Ontarians are environmentalists and they care very, very much about the green belt and, and, and concern for it, having a home is more important to them than having a green belt. And I think politicians have failed to understand that. Well, that's politics, isn't it? I mean, you, you let's, let's, let's not pin this on just opposition or whomever else. I mean, any party that's in power that opens the door for another party to get on them and give them red meat to jump on, they're going to do that. Now, yeah. uh, the, the argument, the, the, the discussion, and I, I think you and I, maybe the last time we talked, it's been weeks, may have talked about this, that, you know what? Yeah, there's a strong sentiment right now, it seems, leave the green belt alone. However, Let's wait for, well, it's not, I mean, it's not a good idea, but this is what's going to happen. Let's wait for 15 years or 20 years when presumably all these developers who are out there, who all want this urban space, all build upwards and all this available space is full. And we still have all this need for new homes. (laughs) And then we're going to be right back in this position because if, unless something changes, we will have said, no, the green belt is not touchable. Yeah. And we will once again be facing this shortage of homes. Now, I don't know what the answer to that is, because clearly the public, Scott, is, it seems anyway, not wanting the green belt touched right now, but it does seem in some ways to be short-sighted because we're at some point, it's almost inevitable, unless, unless the birth rate declines, unless immigration Mm. stops, unless we all start to die off, or unless we all decide we're going to move to, you know, rural Saskatchewan. Uh, we're going to be in this position again in a decade or two. And I, I think the other thing, and, and you know, uh, you have to wonder if people in the Ford government weren't anticipating this, but if you go in and you nimble at the green belt, you're going to get a certain segment of the population. Their hair is just going to go on fire, and it has. And the, the, the first thing they say is, well, we've got all this other land 20 to 40 years, and academics have said this to me, before we even have to touch the green belt, but it has not been developed either. Mm. So it's like they've got egg on their face no matter which way they turn here. I know this is not going to be a popular comment, but can I just say that that I am always rolling my eyes when I'm driving in the um, suburbs of this city, whether it's in Stony Creek or Ancaster or Dundas or wherever, and there are people in the suburbs who have signs up saying no developing on the green belt because yeah. those homes 20 years ago were on farmer's yes. fields. Exactly. There was no problem for exactly. those people landing on farmer's fields. Great yeah. agricultural land, land that served and grew food and fed yeah. cows. Yeah. And now that they have a home, yeah. well, you can't, no, no further though. Okay. I'm, I'm where yeah. it cuts off. It's like when you talk about, you know, what's, what's, how much taxes? Well, yeah. Tax the rich. Okay. Who's the rich? Well, how about, uh, what you make? No, no, I'm not rich. Just above me though. Just above me is good to tax. <laughs> yeah. We, we are blind sometimes to the hypocrisy of saying, you know, uh, I am exactly a few years earlier what I seem to hate now. And I, and I can't believe it when I see these signs. Look, if you, if you're downtown, you, you of all the 
you have all the moral right to put up a sign like that you want. But if you're living on the outskirts of the city of Hamilton and you're fighting to not expand, yeah, maybe, maybe you want to think about why you're living there then. Yeah. Seems to me that that's a, a bit of a ridiculous stance to take. I've also noticed, and again, I don't mean to be partisan about this, but it seems to be the right that will build anywhere without any restrictions on the pin of a he- on the head of a pin. Whereas the left just, no, we can't do that because if you build, it pollutes, it's urban sprawl, it's bad. And now we got a housing crisis. Well, it'll be an interesting scenario uh, and I'm not going to pin it on left or right, but okay. So for all the people who say, okay, we have to build downtown or build wherever in this open space. If a, let's say now within the established boundary that we have, there's a lot that is supposed to be home to a, a, an apartment building or something that's going to be for hundreds of people. Let's say that somehow in the preparation for that land, they find some rare butterfly. Are you going to then say, well, now that can't be built there. Or are you going to say, hold on, we're not going out. So we have to sometimes do things we may not want to do necessarily. It has to be built here. Or are we going to start chasing ourselves all over the city Mm. because we find this here or this here or some of these things, it's going to drive people crazy if we're saying we have to build all these homes and little things come along and we say, well, we can't do it here because no, no, we either do it or we don't. I mean, honestly, because we, one way or another, Scott, we have to find homes. We have to find homes. And I don't think we're at the point anymore. We can argue about sprawl. I don't think we're at the point anymore, though, when we can be nitpicking on where otherwise. Get her done. All right. Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. Read him in the spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great show. I will try. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one from Linda via email. Thank you. Uh, She says, hi, Scott. Great conversations, great interviews, guests, including the present guest. Thanks for keeping your eyes on real concerns. Linda, keep right except to pass. (laughs) 